Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. We have two very sexy topics to discuss today with my co-host, Caroline Diarchy Edwards and Maria Wickvilla. Caroline, of course, is a former admissions director at NCAD and a co-founder of Fortuna Admissions, one of the leading MBA consulting firms in the market. And Maria is the inventor of Applicant Lab, which allows applicants to kind of a do-it-yourself approach, gaining guidance along each step of the way to help you enhance your odds of acceptance. And Maria graduated from that school in Boston that we all know and that many people apply to. We want to talk about two things. One is a Wall Street Journal story that appeared under the headline, MBA applications at some of the country's best colleges fell this year. The story begins with some of the best-known MBA programs in the U.S. registered precipitous drops or sluggish interest from prospective candidates this year following a 2020 admission cycle in which applications soared. That's one thing we want to take on. The second thing we want to take on is a story I'm working on actually today, uh, and we'll have appeared by the time this comes out. And it's about an MBA admissions consulting firm, which claims to have more M7 admission officials on its consulting team than any other firm in the world and why it thinks that's a good thing. So we want to talk about, you know, what kind of backgrounds do MBA admission consultants bring to the game? And does it really matter if you're going to get a terrific uh, coaching experience from them, no matter what their background is? Let's tackle the Wall Street Journal story first. We know that applications at the Kellogg School of Business dropped by 20%, which was pretty dramatic last year, and at Columbia Business School by a less dramatic percentage, 6%. But we also know that those are the only two schools that have so far reported in this current time period that have had declines. Every other school has had an increase. Michigan Ross, in fact, had an increase of over 50%. Uh, Many schools from Cornell to Yale and others have had a 12 plus percent increase. And MIT just announced another increase. In other words, the only two schools so far that are highly prominent in the US that have had a decline are Kellogg and Columbia. And to put a little context around that, if you look at what happened to Kellogg the previous year, their applications were up by something like 54, 56%. Now, how come? It's because they expanded the time in which you could apply to the school because of the pandemic. And they actually announced that they would waive standardized tests. So in came a flood of applicants. Now, judged against that period is a more normal application cycle where they did not expand the deadlines, where they ended their policy of uh, considering waivers of candidates. And so naturally, the application volume fell by 20%. That was a pretty dramatic fall, but it's a total anomaly. And yet, you look at the headline on that Wall Street Journal, you look at the lead on that story, and everything else is behind a paywall. And guess what? You think that there's fewer people interested in getting an MBA today. You think that schools are hard up to find applicants. Caroline, what do you make of this? It's a shame about the headline, as you say, and that they've exaggerated this. And we were discussing this last week when we talked about the rankings that publishers often like to 
dramatize things for the sake of attracting eyeballs and and sort of finding a story that isn't there. And I think that this is a prime case of that, where they're trying to um, build traffic and uh, and create a story where there isn't really one. So look, I mean, I think that last year was definitely you know a banner year for business schools. Volume has stabilized, but I don't see a drop in the market. I mean, we see very strong demand for the new season. And, and you know, I, I did actually talk to the journalists um, for, the, for that article. And one of the points that I made is that, you know, there's the top schools have a very consistent pipeline. And even though there are fluctuations year to year, yes, there may be a surge because of, you know, economic downturn, pandemic, et cetera. And, um, and it is cyclical. Despite those variations, the, stop, the top schools have an incredibly strong, consistent pipeline of outstanding candidates coming through year in, year out. And the media often like to make a story about, you know, doom and gloom for business schools. You know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, <laughs> people don't need MBAs any longer. Um, you know, decline in demand. It's just not happening. We don't see that. There may be greater fluctuations in demand for schools that are further down the pecking order, but the top schools have consistent demand coming through, and we don't see that changing. That's true, and and, and the facts are just uh, they're obvious. Duke up twelve point one percent. Michigan up fifty five point nine. Cornell up twelve point four. Yale up twelve point three. Dartmouth Tuck up eleven point zero. MIT up twelve point zero. How in the world you could actually justify coming out with a story saying that things are are bad, applications are down? I have no idea. Maria, you don't trust what the media says, even though you had a career in media. <laughs> That's why she doesn't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust anybody, John. Um, no, I. You know what I mean. This this what's what's sort of annoying about this this analysis, this quote unquote analysis, is that it's really not an apples to apples comparison. I mean, twenty twenty was such a crazy year, not just in MBA admissions, but you might have noticed that it was also a slightly crazy year on other in other facets of life as well. <laughs> and so to say something like, well, Kellogg's applications are down, that's like saying, well, you know, during the pandemic, I placed a lot of online grocery orders. And after the pandemic, I placed a lot fewer of them. And it's like, well, so does that mean that the grocery business is dying? Like, no, it's just because things are different now. And so I think I actually... Admittedly, my coffee is still kicking in, but I, I I Googled actually what was the 2019 application number to Kellogg. And so it might be down 20% versus last year. But if I did this correctly in my little handy dandy Excel sheet, they're actually up by three and a half percent compared to 2019. So if this were really a doom and gloom thing, we would be seeing this very consistent downward trend even from pre-pandemic levels. So it's really not fair to put up you know, this pandemic number, which was crazy because as we as we've discussed in the past, Kellogg extended their deadlines. Kellogg said, you know, you don't need a GMAT anymore. I believe and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, because like I said, the coffee hasn't kicked in yet. I think Kellogg actually even said if we rejected you in an earlier round, you can come back and reapply. Maybe we'll change our minds. Right. Is I think yes, they were. They did. That so, of yeah. course, a bunch of rejected people were applying. So it's just it's not at all an apples to apples. It wasn't an apples to apples comparison. So I you know, I, I get it, man. You need you need to generate the clicks. If you just say <laughs> things are going swimmingly, not much change to report, then no one's going to click on it. And, you know, John, you're the one who was a journalist. Maybe your editor gets mad at you and they walk in and they're all grumpy and they're like, nobody's clicking on your article. Shape up, burn. 
you know, and so there's a lot of Luckily, pressure. I was a journalist, but we didn't measure clicks. <laughs> you got out at the you right know, time. <laughs> and, and, and to your point about Kellogg, okay, even after the 20% climb, the application volume at the school was higher than any Kellogg admission cycle since 2014, okay? So that, of course, that wasn't in the story either. But it just goes to show, and, I, and we, we've addressed this issue before, why are there so many people who are so eager to, in one way or another, diminish the MBA? Yeah, I know it's the most popular graduate degree in America, and people tend to love success, but they also tend to envy and hate success in, in people and in organizations and everything. You know, when you're number one, you're always a target. But why, why is it so consistent that everyone wants to be a, a, a bearer of bad news when it comes to the MBA. Maria, why do you think Schad- so? Schadenfreude. It's Schadenfreude, right? <laughs> I mean, everyone loves to, nobody, you know, the only thing people love more than an underdog story is a fall from grace story. And I wonder, I actually have not yet clicked on this article, but, you know, oftentimes the journalists who love writing these stories themselves don't have MBAs. And so it's really great. It's extra great to be on the outside criticizing things. It's like when people are like, oh, the royal family, they're, you know, let's let's throw rocks at them. And it's like, well, is it because you really don't like them or is it because you're a little jealous that you're not in the royal family? Or, you know, maybe I don't know if that analogy holds up, but you know what I mean? It's like, well, wait a minute. Do you have an MBA? Like if you did, you probably would think that it was a pretty valuable experience and maybe you would be a little bit less likely to to throw rocks at it. You know, and, AKA and, jealous much. Yeah. yeah. And Maria, you have an MBA. Caroline, you have an MBA. Caroline, I bet you there are times when people say, Hey, do you really think that MBA was worth it? Aren't you don't you regret having gone? Well, you know, they don't say that to me so often these days, given my profession. I I think they 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 can assume they know that the answer to that question, but People do sometimes say to me, talk about the bad publicity that these articles generate and, and you know, oh, the you know latest tech titan has said you don't need to go to business school. So people are going to stop going to business school and demand is going to decrease. And, you know, the schools aren't worried about that. They have an incredibly talented pipeline of people coming through who understand the value of the experience they're going to get and, you know, how it's going to help them in the future. So regardless of, you know, the latest, the latest headlines and, and um, you know, what journalists jump on because somebody has said something critical, you know, it's like the e- Elon Musk thing the other day, right? I mean, fundamentally, it doesn't change anything about the business school experience and what you're going to get out of it. And True. candidates know that and recruiters know that. So... That is really true. If anything, I would think that what makes the job of selecting talent at these business schools so difficult is that there's so many highly skilled people who deserve to be admitted, and so many of them are turned down. It's the opposite problem. In other words, there's a surplus of quality applicants that cannot be served by the limited supply of seats in the classroom. So I would think the greater worry at most business schools is, are we rejecting someone who potentially could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company Mm. or be the next big entrepreneur who's going to shape the way things are done in his or her industry? And less about, 
oh, our applications might be down by two or three or four or five percent, or in the case of Kellogg, 20 percent, which still happens to be higher than any other application volume they've had since 2014. I'm sure that that's true. Now, when you were at NCOD, I mean, you certainly didn't worry about application volume. No. And when I, when I took the role, I spent some time looking back through the the statistics and you know clearly there was a cycle that is correlated with the economic cycle yes um but what i also observed was that there's an incredibly consistent pipeline of strong candidates coming through and when there's a surge of applications for example if there's an economic downturn that increased volume is not always of the same quality as that consistent volume that's coming through year by year so therefore the fluctuations um, sometimes, you know, it's not necessarily terribly helpful because you get people throwing their hat into the ring for the wrong reasons, right? And they're not necessarily the best qualified candidates and the best prepared candidates. So it's somewhat misleading to say that, you know, a huge surge in application volume is a great thing for business schools because actually they don't necessarily need all of that additional volume and they may be dealing with more candidates who are less well prepared. So, so, you know, the, the, the top schools have a very loyal base, a pipeline coming through year by year, regardless of the cycle. And, you know, the, all those headlines are just a distraction, really, and doesn't, it doesn't really say much about actually what is going on fundamentally. Absolutely. So I, I want to turn to another uh, topic because it's ever present in my mind because I'm writing about this today. So a few days ago, one of your competitors, and this goes to both Maria and Caroline, sent me an analysis of their rival firms and how they compare with them on the basis of uh, one metric. How many M7 admission officers actually work for them as consultants? And this firm, it's uh, Stacy Blackman Consulting, by their own count, uh, says there are, they have 21 former members of M7 admissions offices, including the trio from Harvard Business School and Stanford School of Business on their team. And we know that, you know, when Fortuna was founded, its differentiation in the market, in fact, was that Fortuna put together a team of people who had worked in ad positions at some of the best schools, including NCOD, uh, Wharton, uh, you even had as advisors, uh, former adcoms at, I believe, Berkeley and Chicago Booth. So my question is, do you really have to have experience, inside experience, privileged information of being on the inside of the admissions process, having read thousands of applications, maybe interviewed thousands of students as well, having sat in dozens or hundreds of admission committee meetings where there were conversations and discussions, if not debates, about given candidates and whether they were worthy enough to be accepted. Is that a prerequisite to being a good admissions consultant? Now, Maria, I, I, you should take on this because you didn't have adcom experience. Correct. I do not have official adcom experience. I am always very transparent about that. I was an admissions volunteer for a student organization that was trying to bring more applicants to campus. So 
At HBS, the way how it works is that so different schools have different levels of student involvement in the admissions office. So at some schools, the students are reading files and assessing them. At some schools, the students are doing interviews. At HBS, the students are really not involved in the admissions process. Most people who are students at HBS who do anything with the admissions office are they're quote unquote section admissions reps. And that might sound very exciting to an outsider, but all it is is you're a tour guide, right? Whenever there's a visitor who's gonna come sit in on your class, you go to the admissions office, you make sure they're happy, you do small talk and you walk them to the classroom. So what I sometimes see people at various firms say like, oh, my name is so-and-so and I was a, you know, a Harvard admissions rep. And it's like, I know what I know what that means. That means you just you were a tour guide. There are also people in the Harvard admissions office, for example, who might just be processing some of the files or who might be in the interviews. They might be the note takers in the interviews. And yet they can still they those people can credibly say, I worked in the admissions office. But did you really like you if you were just taking notes during the interview? I'm sure that you have some experience and some insight, but it's probably not super valuable. Now, my role was a little bit different in that I was working with there was there was specifically an admissions officer devoted to diversity recruitment. And so I was working with him to try to figure out how do we increase the pipeline? And when we talk about increasing the pipeline, we want a quality pipeline. And from my conversations with him, I was able to glean what does Harvard define as a quality pipeline, number one. And then number two, I think that you just have to have a lot of experience doing this, right? So I also, when I started in this field for years, I did not charge anything because I was like, I'm learning, right? And so if you're willing to learn along with me while I help you, why should I charge for that? I would not charge money for my advice if I if I I, I would not be able to sleep at night. I can't. I was not it was too 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 catholic of an upbringing for me to be able to charge money for something if I didn't think it had value. And so I think there are also other ways to get a lot of information. Like those of us who are members of AGAC, which is the Association of Independent Graduate Admissions Consultants. I think that's what that stands for. You know, thank you, Caroline. Caroline's giving me the thumbs up over the Zoom. Thank you. Uh, I, just, I just call it AGAC, but I don't think about what it means. Anyway, you know, every year we have an, a conference with admissions officers. We sit in rooms with admissions officers. We do exercises where we discuss hypothetical made-up candidates with admissions officers. And so we say to them, well, what would you accept this hypothetical candidate with a 720 and a 3.2 GPA over this other candidate with a 7.8, right? And so we have these, so we get to learn how they think. It's not as good as having been sitting there, you know, <laughs> for for years and years reading thousands, but you do start to glean information. You We visit the schools every year. You start to glean information. You see who gets in and who doesn't. You see which essays tend to work and which ones don't. And so after you do this for several, several years, as, as long as you have the experience and you've seen the pat, you start to be able to do pattern matching. I think that's key. And I think the other thing is also the ability to communicate, right? There might be people out there who fundamentally have a great understanding of what a business school is looking for, but if they don't know how to help somebody else convey that or communicate that effectively, if they are a bad writer, for example, then they're not going to be helpful as an admissions consultant. So I think it helps. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't, but I also think that there are other ways to gain that expertise. That's true. And, you know, uh, I interviewed another person who owns a firm who does not have many former adcoms on the staff. And here's what he said. Who would you hire, a film critic or a director to get behind the camera of your film? A food critic or a chef to prepare a meal for your most critical professional dinner? Are those questions actually beside the point, Caroline? 
Well, look, I mean, my perspective on this was, and I, I started Fortuna, as you know, with, with Matt and Judith years back, after having um, worked at INSEAD for several years and having observed that more and more of our students were working with counsellors. And, and after looking into this, I realised that a lot of the people that we were, they were working with and paying for a lot of money didn't know very much at all about INSEAD and, and what it took to get in. And, you know, when I looked at it a little bit more deeply, I discovered yeah, that a lot of people who had sort of set up shop as advisors were people who had graduated from a school and then someone had approached them and said, oh, you know, I'd really like to go to that school as well. Can you help me? And they sort of started advising someone. It snowballed from there and sort of fallen into it that way. And, you know, I knew from having studied in Seattle, done my MBA, and then gone back two years later in the admissions office, that as a student, I knew nothing about how admissions worked. And it was a whole new world being behind the closed doors of admissions. And as a student and alum, you might even not really know exactly why you got in, never mind why anyone else would get it, right? Um, it's, it, it's not necessarily something you're exposed to when you, when you attend the school. So that was where we were coming from. We saw that there was a gap in the market where, you know, there were a lot of counsellors out there who were not giving very good advice. And I also knew that from the fact that you know, sometimes those coaches would approach us with questions that were incredibly basic, right? I mean, they hadn't even web- read the website. So, um, so yeah, it was concerning that people were paying them large sums of money for, for their advice. Um, and therefore, we set up Fortuna with the idea of bringing together a team of people who had that insider expertise. And I completely agree that that insider expertise um, alone is not sufficient. So, so to me, there are sort of three different elements to the skills yeah. that a good admissions coach should bring to the table. So one part of it is that school insight and understanding the admissions process and the DNA of the school and who is a good fit for that school and, and helping people understand, you know, where they should apply and where would be a good fit for them um, and helping navigate, helping them navigate through the process and understand what is expected of them and how they can best um, you know, put their best foot forward in the process. And then a, a second part is just being a good coach, right? There's universal coaching skills of being a good listener, um, being able to hold up a mirror to someone and help them understand um, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, um, help them think about their future and what they want to do in the short term and the medium term and how they see their career evolving over time. Um, and, and, um, you know, really spending the time to get to know them um, and and give them some good advice on, um, you know, what they have achieved to date and, and, you know, what the skills are that they've they've developed, because that's sometimes not so obvious to someone who is in their mid-20s and they are working alongside people who have a very similar profile and it might be difficult for them to sort of figure out, well, what is unique about my story? And, And often a coach who's coming to their to their profile for the with with a fresh set of eyes and, and understand their full history can really see the things that stand out in a way that it's very difficult sometimes for the individual to do because it's difficult to see the forest for the trees right yes. so there's that sort of coaching element and then there's being able to shape a story and help somebody articulate their story effectively and get that down on paper 
and um, help them, you know, coach them for the interviews and so on. So there's the, the sort of the more content oriented piece as well. So I think, you know, all of those three elements are very important. And when we hire people at Fortuna, we're not just looking at, you know, the school expertise. We're very much looking at, we put people through their paces before we hire them to screen for those other elements as well. So all of those those three pieces are, are super important. And, you know, I, I agree with Maria, if, you know, if over time, you can build up that knowledge of the schools and, and through, you know, through diligence and, and experience, you can certainly build that up. Unfortunately, too many people don't take the time to do that, I think. So I think one of the, the tricky things for candidates these days is there is just the, the process can be a bit overwhelming because there is so much information out there, right? When I applied to business school, I ordered the brochure, right? I filled out a form. It was, you know, there wasn't this wealth, overwhelming wealth of information online with a lot of good advice and a lot of bad advice. And then how is a candidate supposed to know which is which, Right. And so one of the things that we do is help people sort of navigate through that process and figure out what it is that they need to know, what are the good information sources, help dispel some of the myths and take some of the anxiety out of, out of the process. And having the experience from being behind the closed doors of, of admissions can give us some confidence in the advice that we're giving people, that we're not guessing, that we actually, you know, can say with some authority how the schools evaluate candidates, what they like to see, what they don't like to see. And through our experience of, you know, both being in the schools and now, you know, working with hundreds and hundreds of candidates at, at Fortuna, you know, how an individual's profile will stand up in comparison to other people in the pool. And, you know, we, we stay in touch with the schools as well. I mean, that's very important to us to to maintain, um, you know, to keep our knowledge up to date. And I'm in regular contact with my former colleagues at INSEAD, as are many of my colleagues at Fortuna with their former colleagues. And, and so, you know, we, we do our best to, to, to maintain those relationships and stay on top of things so that our, you know, our, our knowledge is always current. You know, all, all, <clears throat> all good points. And actually, in many ways, I think like everything in life, it comes down to practice, Right. So a personal story. I recently went to a teaching hospital to have my eyes examined. I'm getting uh, to that age when, you know, uh, things get a little blurry here and there. And I do have cataracts. They're not severe. But I had a surgeon look at them at the teaching hospital. And she, she was terrific. I loved her. Uh, and then I asked, well, how many of these procedures have you done? And she said, 25. And I said, no offense, but uh, I want someone who's done thousands of these. And I think the point here that I'm trying to make is that regardless of whether or not you have inside information about a particular school's admissions processes, regardless of how far removed you are from the school and how perishable that information might be, the number of people you've worked with over the years and helping them with their applications and all those applications that you've seen and how they differ from each other and all the outcomes that you've seen those students get is what could make you an incredibly valuable and helpful counselor to others. I'm sure both of you would agree with that. Yep. Now, Caroline, would you have someone operate on your eyes who's done 25 cataract surgeries? 
<laughs> well, it does sound rather early stage, doesn't it? <laughs> You're so diplomatic. And Maria, how about Always you? Always has the best words. Uh, really? Uh, you know? <laughs> Not me, John. I want the person to operate on my eyes who ran admissions for the medical school. <laughs> okay. That's who I want operating on my eyes. <laughs> All right. There you have it. I, I, I don't know if we came up with one way or the other. I think there's both ways. You can be a great coach, whether or not you have uh, ad comm experience. And if you do have ad comm experience, obviously you've, you've seen a lot and you see how subtle differences and nuances can make a difference in a candidacy. Uh, and you see how different people in an admissions committee room react to it. But that may not be necessary to make you an excellent coach. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet on it that there are coaches out there who are as good or better than those who have admissions experience and vice versa. Uh, so there's no one rule to apply. And it may just be, you know, some differentiation. Uh, but if you don't look for those other points that Caroline mentioned, a good listener, someone who's empathetic through the process, someone who keeps in touch with the schools and knows their cultures, someone who knows what these different schools are looking for, even though your, your own experience may be for one school. If you're not doing all those other things, you're not going to be any good at the job of helping others get into their dream school. All right, Maria, Caroline, thank you as always. This is John Byrne with Parts Watch. You've been listening to Business Casual. Business Casual.